Welcome to the Pursuing Faith Podcast, where we explore questions of faith, doubt, and life. I am your host, Dominic Doan. Hey everyone, well I hope you're doing well in this crazy time in which we find ourselves in and today's episode is a little different than usual. Um, I want to share with you a talk that I gave. Um, this is a few months ago, but in reality, it feels like eternity ago. This was right before shutdown happened, right before the whole COVID thing happened. And it's a talk that I gave at Biola University. Had a great time going down there. I got to record a class and uh, hang out with the staff and the faculty and students. And then also uh, got an opportunity to share at some of their chapels. And so this talk is from the After Dark Chapel at Biola University. I hope you guys enjoy it, and I hope it encourages your faith today. Let's talk about doubt. Um, The reason I I wrote this book is because I went through a season of my life um, of deconstruction, and uh, there's actually a time where I almost became an atheist. And after going through that season, um, God just began to speak to my heart in different ways and just kind of opened my eyes a little bit uh, to my own story and uh, what doubt is from a a biblical perspective. And so in in the book, I share a little bit about my story. Um, You saw Bob Goff on there, and uh, Bob's foreword to the book is like gold. So if if that's all you read, you can just throw away the book uh, because what he wrote is just so brilliant. But I make the argument in the book um, that deep faith actually calls out to us on the other side of our doubts, and that our doubts, if we let it, can be the very instrument that draws us closer and closer to Jesus. So I want to begin, I have 30 minutes, I want to begin by starting in Jude verse 22. So I don't know if you have a Bible with you, if not, no worries, I think we'll put it on the screen. Jude verse 22, Um, as you guys know, the book of Jude only has one chapter, and this is what it says, be merciful to those who doubt. In fact, this would be cool. Why don't we say this verse together on the count of three, just out loud, let's fill this place with God's word. Here we go, one, two, three. Be merciful to those who doubt. Now I know there's a ton of people, they look at that verse and they have a really, really hard time relating because they look at their story and it's like they've never gone through a season of doubt. Maybe you know someone like this. It's like you ask them, how long have you been a Christian? They kind of stare at you. I don't know, I've been a Christian as long as I can remember. They were singing Hillsong in their mother's womb, right? And they just came out speaking in tongues and they haven't looked back since. And if that's your story, I I think that's really beautiful. I kind of envy that. Um, But I think for most of us, doubt is just part of our story. Um, There's a philosopher, his name is Michael Novak. And he said that doubt is not so much a dividing line that separates people into different camps as it is a razor's edge which runs through every soul. So doubt is the the complicated, enigmatic mess of what it means to be human. Um, Doubt is the moment when You've been praying to the Lord for a breakthrough, for some prayer, some, some provision financially, or maybe healing for someone, uh, but it's like you get nothing but crickets in return. Um, doubt is a moment when you struggle with grief or loss. I know, I know that many of us have been in that space even this week with what happened to Kobe and, and his family, and you just wonder, like, 
God, where are you in the midst of that? Um, doubt is a moment when you, you get that unexpected phone call. This happened to my family just um, a couple weeks ago. Uh, Christmas Day, hanging out with my wife's family up in Portland, Oregon. We had a great Christmas, uh, said goodnight to her parents. Um, her, her parents are just in their early 60s super healthy, say goodnight, and then we get a call the very next day, the day after Christmas, and my wife's mom went to bed and and didn't wake up. And and so it's been a season for us of just questioning, like, Lord, why we don't understand this and and grief. And I know that many of you know what I'm talking about because you've gone through seasons like that. Um, Doubt is a moment when maybe you're studying science, and, and at first glance, what you're learning in science seems to be incompatible with the Christian story. Or doubt is a moment when maybe you get close to a church. And I'm a pastor, I get this. It seems that the closer you get to churches sometimes, the more hypocrisy you see, uh, the more politics you see or drama you see. And, and, and we look at that, and that can even be a hang-up to our faith and, and cause us to wonder, is any of this true? Um, so I pastor a church up in Portland uh, where the hipsters are from. And um, there is a guy who used to go to our church. I hadn't seen him for a while. And I ran into him the other day, and I'm like, hey, where have you been? And he said, you know, I don't go to church anymore. I said, why not? And he said, well, the church is just full of hypocrites. Like, we've all heard that a thousand times. And so I said, well, there's always room for one more. We'd love, we'd love to have you back. And that opened up a whole other conversation. But it's true, though, right? Like, the closer you get to, to any church community, you realize we're all broken and flawed and messed up. And that can create doubt. Um, doubt is a moment when you're reading scripture, and have you ever come across those parts of the Bible that just seem really messed up or weird or confusing? So it's the end of January. I know that some of us, we've started the Read Through the Bible in a Year program, and I, and I love that because you get to Genesis, and it's mostly fast moving, and then you get to Exodus, and, and there's a lot of stories, and if you miss a chapter, you can watch the movie, and, the, and then you get to the book of Leviticus, and I don't know about you guys, but how many read through the Bible plans have died the death of Leviticus? Like you just come across these verses like, really? Thou shall not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And you're like, dang it. You take the goat out of the pot, (laughs) you set it outside. And so you like you read the Bible and you study the Bible. You're like, this is so weird. I I don't understand it. And we, we wrestle with our doubts. I'm not just talking about too the, the doubts that are a byproduct of our own story, because chances are there's a good percentage of you who are in that space tonight. But I'm talking about the doubt that comes at us because of our cultural moment. Um, Pew Research they put out this whole article uh, just this last year on what's happening in our nation, and the stats were absolutely staggering. They said that those who experience doubts about God has increased 10%, 15% in the last 10 years. Uh, they also said that two-thirds of people in America who identify as followers of Jesus struggle with doubt. And then Gen Z, which I think is y'all, like anyone under the age of 22 is considered Gen Z. So now that I'm 23, I'm just barely out of that. Um, <laughs> So Gen Z is considered the least Christian generation in our nation's history. Um, The author James K.A. Smith, brilliant mind, interesting thinker, he said, we don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. We are all Thomas now. 
So we breathe the secondhand smoke of doubt. And here's the interesting bit, is that when a person doubts, they're typically given two options, and neither option is very good. And, and, and I know that many of you guys will recognize these options because you've been there, you've experienced it. Option one is to idolize your doubt. And, and this is when someone goes through a season of doubt and instead of doubting their doubts, they put more faith in their doubt than in the thing that they're doubting. I mean, and this is being fueled big time right now with a ton of like Christian podcasts and those who would identify more the progressive evangelical movement. And, and the key word there is uh, deconstruction. So we're told to just deconstruct everything. Uh, if you have questions about the Bible, deconstruct it. If you have questions about church, deconstruct it. If you have questions about your faith, deconstruct it. And here's the problem with deconstruction. I think deconstruction can be healthy if it's bringing you back to the core of your faith or if it's a minimizing of your faith and maybe getting rid of some of the peripheral issues that were a hang up to you. I think deconstruction could be helpful if it's like a rearranging of the furniture. But if it's just deconstruction for the sake of deconstruction, it's not gonna lead you anywhere. Like any two-year-old can tear up a room. Um, I think it takes wisdom to learn how to live in the tension of a conflicted faith. Uh, so I think sometimes deconstruction just for the sake of deconstruction can be a cop-out. And, and idolizing our, our doubts rather than taking time to evaluate our doubts can actually lead us down some pretty unhealthy roads. Option two, and I think this is equally unhealthy, is not to idolize our doubts, but it's to demonize our doubts. And we see this a ton in like uber legalistic churches. Uh, maybe you've been a part of a church like this where kind of the, the ethos of that community is that doubt is an evil. Doubt is always wrong. And so you show up to church and it's like the Lego gospel. Everything is awesome, right? And you just have to, you have to put on the mask and you have to say the Christianese and you have to sing the songs and you act like everything's okay. And, and you feel like it's not a safe space to, to be honest. Uh, you feel like there, there, there's no room there for you, for you to ask questions or to give voice to your doubt. And, and what happens in that kind of context, and that was actually part of my story too, is that instead of being real with God and with others about the things that you're struggling with, you begin to suppress them, you begin to push them down. But that can be really unhealthy because I think doubt's greatest strength is secrecy. It's not until we drag it into the light that it can become redemptive and actually lead us into a flourishing, deeper form of faith. Now, why is it? Why is it that so many Christians feel that doubt somehow is, is a great evil or, or even worse, a sin? I think one reason is that there is this theological misconception that doubt is the same as unbelief. When you look in the Bible, you see the unbelief, sure, that, that's wrong. Like Jesus is leading us to a place of deeper and deeper faith. He wants us to trust in him. He wants us to believe in him. But what we need to know from scripture is that the opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. Doubt is actually that middle kind of murky space in between. It's essentially neutral. It's like a spiritual Switzerland, right? It, it's, it's neutral. It, it, it all depends 
how you respond to your doubts and what you do with your doubt. So your doubt can actually lead you into a deeper version of faith if you chase after it and ask the right questions and you wrestle with God and with others in in that time of doubt or your doubt can lead you towards unbelief depending on your response. Now this was a game changer for me when I began to look at the New Testament through this this grid and I realized, wait a minute, in, in the Bible, the word doubt and unbelief, they're, they're two totally separate words. So let me geek out with you for just a few minutes here. The word doubt, in, in, one of the words for doubt in the New Testament is the word diacrino. Uh, let me hear you say diacrino. It, it means to separate or to be torn. This is an important image. Um, it comes from this Latin word, dubitare, which means two. So according to the New Testament, when a person doubts, it's like they're being torn in two. Or think the book of James, a person who doubts is like the person who's tossed on the waves of the sea back and forth. So you're being torn between two opposing points of view. Unbelief, though, is a different word. It's the word apostia. Let me hear you say apostia. apostia. This is huge. Apostia is an unwillingness to believe. So doubt is saying I don't know what to believe or I'm struggling to believe. Apostia says, you know what? I've chosen not to believe. And there's a big difference. One version is wrestling in the pursuit of truth. The other person has closed themselves off from the truth. Um, So earlier, they mentioned that we spent some time in England and Oxford. And Oxford's a fascinating city because it's kind of a, I don't know, it's been known over the last decade or so as an epicenter for some of the new atheist movements. And I, I remember meeting Richard Dawkins. He's like, you know, guy who wrote The God Delusion. Actually, his house was like two houses down from the place where I studied, just a stone's throw away. I didn't throw stones. Um, we had some interesting conversations. And what was interesting about Richard Dawkins is that he didn't identify just as an atheist, but more as an anti-theist. And I know someone in his camp kind of felt the same way. Stephen Hawking is another example. He actually passed away a couple years ago. And uh, when we lived there, uh, Stephen Hawking was interviewed by this uh, big uh, British newspaper. And he's like ripping apart religion, making fun of Christianity. And in this article, Stephen Hawking said, quote, Christianity is a fairy story for those who are afraid of the dark. And the people who wrote this, they then went to John Lennox, which I know many of you heard of. If you haven't, you gotta check him out, go on YouTube. John Lennox, brilliant mind, professor of mathematics at Oxford, follower of Jesus. They went to him and said, look, your colleague Stephen Hawking just said that Christianity is a fairy story for those afraid of the dark. What do you have to say? And John Lennox, you know, without even blinking an eye, he said, no, atheism is a fairy story for those afraid of the light. It's this brilliant response. But in that, he's actually drawing a fascinating truth out that Hawking's version of atheism, now his view on atheism may have since changed, but his view on atheism at that time was less of, you know what, I'm seeking, I'm pursuing, I'm inquiring, and it was more a hardened resolve. And this is so key for us to understand that when you go through a season of doubt, it's normal, it's natural, I think it's part of being human, but doubt in and of itself is different than unbelief, that hardened resolve, choosing not to pursue the way of Jesus. Which brings us to what I think is the healthiest way that we need to respond to our doubts. And that is not to idolize our doubts, deconstruction for the sake of deconstruction, nor is it to demonize our doubts, suppress them and pretend that they don't exist. 
the healthiest response to our doubt is to wrestle with God through our doubts. To take a season in our life, it, it might be six months, it might be six years, it might be 60 years, but to take a season in your life and say, you know what? I'm gonna be more honest with God and with others than I've ever been before. I'm gonna go deep. I'm not just gonna settle for the low-hanging fruit. I'm gonna ask questions. I'm gonna inquire. I'm gonna read. I'm gonna study. I'm gonna probe. I'm gonna learn. I'm gonna open myself up to truth. And it's in that space that our faith begins to grow. And what I love about the Bible is that it is filled with countless examples of women and men who did just that. Whether it was Sarah, who actually laughed when she heard the promises of God, or the Apostle Paul, or David in the book of Psalms that are filled with gritty, raw, unfiltered prayers and questions. How long, O Lord, why do you allow this to happen? Wrestling with God through his doubts and yet choosing to trust in him. One of my favorite examples is Psalm 73. This is worth checking out later. Um, Psalm 73, written by Asaph, who is a worship leader. It says, truly, God is good. Now, we all love that first part. I, I was speaking to a church in the South not too long ago, and they, they had this kind of, it was kind of cheesy, to be honest, but they had this chant where the, the pastor got up, and he's like, God is good, and everyone in the crowd's like, all the time, God is good, and it was like this back and forth thing, and, and we all love that. Like, yeah, God is good. It's the foundation of our theology, and, and that's true, but we don't often read the rest of the psalm, which is Asaph pouring out his heart in real time, just being honest with God about his struggles. Why, God, why are you allowing these things to happen? Why is there so much pain? Why is there so much chaos? What, why are, are there these things that are happening in the world? He said, as for me, my feet almost slipped. Now remember how I, how I said that doubt is being torn? Doubt is this idea of, of two-ness. You're, you're being ripped apart at, at a deep level. Asaph, he, he's showing us what that looks like. God, I, I believe that you're good. I, I believe in your character. I believe in your presence. I believe you are the person who I've, I've come to know over these years, but I'm going through a season right now and it's hard and it's challenging and it's painful and it's excruciating. As for me, my feet almost slipped. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a season of life? You're like, yeah, God's good. I can sing the songs. I, I can read my Bible. I can go to class. I can play the Christian part, but if I'm honest, as for me, my feet almost slipped. It feels like a spiritual vertigo right now because I don't know what God is doing in my life and I don't know why he's allowed these things to happen. And what makes doubt so hard, it's not just the intellectual struggle, it's not just the philosophical questions, it's more than that, it's not just the books you read. What makes doubt so hard and painful is that it can feel like a tearing of a relationship. Have you ever been in a relationship and you find out something, you're dating someone, and you find out something about them like six months in that you didn't know? That's like the worst feeling. Or, or man, you find out, wow, you've been hiding this from me. I thought you loved Jesus, and now I find out you like country music. Like, this isn't gonna work, right? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and when you're in those seasons where you, you find something out about another person, it could be so painful why? Because it feels like trust has been broken. Oh, this is huge. What makes doubt so hard is it feels like, God, can I trust you? 
I thought you were good, but cancer. I thought you were good, but a breakup. I thought you were good, but why did he have to die? I thought you were good, but, but why? C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book called A Grief Observed. Um, I don't know if any of you have read that book, but if, if you haven't, I recommend it, but just to warn you, it's like hashtag Eeyore vibes. It's like really, it's like really depressing, honestly. And, and the reason why it's depressing is because C.S. Lewis wrote it a year after his wife, Joy, died. And those years that he was married to Joy were the most happy of his life, and when she died, he was absolutely gutted. And he wrote this book, and like the book of Psalms, he's like pouring out his emotion, he's pouring out his grief, he's just filled with all of this pain. He calls God the great iconoclast. He said, God, I came to the door of prayer, but all I got was a slam door in my face. Where are you? I don't understand this. And he's being raw and gritty and unfiltered. And you read this book, it's like, whoa, this is heavy. But then you get to the end of the book and what you find is that Lewis's faith begins to be put back together, only it looks somewhat different than it had before. His faith after going through that season of doubt and questioning was actually more about, at the end of the journey, it was more about trust, the fragile beauty of trust, learning to believe and follow the Lord in the midst of life's unanswered questions. There's this beautiful line in another book he wrote called Till We Have Faces, which I think is my favorite all-time C.S. Lewis book. It's, it's beautiful. He said, I now know, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? In other words, I've come to the point where my soul wants more than just bullet point scripted answers. I've come to a point where I don't want just an, another Bible study or memorizing verses. I, I've come to a point where my heart wants more than anything else is you. You are yourself the answer. And I think it's like any relationship. Sometimes I think it's the fragileness of a relationship or questions in a relationship or mystery in a relationship that can make the relationship feel alive and beautiful. There's a guy at our church who is like, he's in his later 20s, he's single and he's like desperate to mingle. Um, like seriously, every time I see him, he just he talks about who he's dating or who he wants to date. But I, I ran into him a while back and, and he's, like, he's like, Dom, I met this girl, she's amazing. Uh, I'm like, where is she? He's like, well, she's not here. I'm like, why not? And he says, well, you know, she's not a Christian. So you're missionary dating, okay, fascinating. <laughs> What's this about? Why are you dating her? And he's like, well, because he, he told me this, because she's hot. I'm like, so is hell. Um, <laughs> let's talk about this. Um, and that opened up a whole other conversation. <laughs> but but he, he, he said this line as we're, <laughs> he said this line. He's like, you know, Dom, we, we've been dating and we've been together now for almost a year and we haven't had a single argument. Isn't that rad? I'm like, what? He said, yeah, we, we've been together for a year. We haven't had a single art, not one disagreement. Isn't that a good thing? I'm like, I don't, <laughs> I don't think it is good because if she really knew you, there'd probably be some tension. And if you really knew her, there would be some tension too. Like I think about my own wife. Um, there's a lot I know about her. She's a morning person. She loves to cook. She loves to garden. She used to like cats and then she repented and we got a golden doodle. Um, she's an amazing person. Um, even though I know a ton about her, there's also a ton that I'm learning about her. 
I'll see her respond to situations sometimes that catch me by surprise. She'll share a story. Oh, I didn't know that. I I see how she's managed this season of grief. Oh, that's really beautiful. We share a Spotify account. I'll open Spotify like Country Road, Billy Ray Cyrus. Really, you're listening to that? Let's talk, right? There there are times in our relationship when when she'll, she'll surprise me. There are times in our relationship where it kind of feels like there's some element of mystery, and I would actually argue that's a beautiful thing. It's because there's questions that are aching to be asked. It's because there's aspects to her personality that have yet to be fully understood or explored. It's the pursuit of love that leads to the discovery of love. Mystery is the lifeblood of intimacy. And what if God created the world in such a way, and what if God made you in such a way where doubt and mystery and questions is part of the package, not to derail our faith, but as an invitation for us to pursue our faith in ways that we never have before. One last story and I'll be done. Um, So I I used to be a missionary uh, in a place called Vanuatu. Um, Has anyone ever heard of Vanuatu? Like two of us, okay. So Vanuatu is considered the the least, uh, the most, um, how would I describe it? Uh, remote country on earth. Uh, There are people there who have never seen outsiders before. I lived there for three years. I taught at this little Christian college. And it was amazing. We're in the middle of the jungle, no electricity, no running water. The people were absolutely amazing. And I had to learn this language called Bislama. Bislama, if you've never heard of it, um, it's kind of a Creole-based language. There's actually kind of a sad story behind it, how it was introduced. Um, yeah, it was introduced by some colonialists years ago, and then it kind of adapted with some of their language. But Bislama is a very descriptive language. For example, the word slingshot, which <laughs> they made these slingshots to get their food. There's no Walmart there or Costco. Um, so if you wanted to eat, you had to take these little slingshots, and you have to go out in the jungle, and, and, and you'd, you'd kill whatever. Um, the word slingshot was elastic blong shootem pigeon. So that's Bislama. So you're going to get a sense of what it's like. Or the, the word piano, this is my favorite word in Bislama. It's, this is so epic. Piano, you wouldn't just say piano. You would say, hit me one big fella box <laughs> where he got white teeth blong him, mo he got black teeth blong him, mo suppose you kill him teeth blong him, hit me sing out long you. That's the word piano. All of that is piano. So you can imagine, I've, I'm teaching through the book of Romans, and I get to the word propitiation, I'm like, oh snap, like this is gonna take months to explain. Like, so it's a fascinating language, beautiful language, but it kind of gives you a sense of, of kind of our reality there. And every night, um, again, there's nothing to do in Vanuatu. I was in my early 20s, every night we'd sit around a fire, like, like, that's all you do, you sit around a fire, and you tell stories. Now stories is what we do on Instagram. There they actually tell stories with people. Um, it's amazing, amazing concept. And, and one by one, every single night, it was so cool, people would take turns sharing stories of what they've gone through or experienced. I'd been there a few months, and I'll never forget one of the guys, he looked at me, he's like, so Dominic, tell me, what is your favorite thing to do in America? And I was, I was raised part of my childhood in Southern California, so without even blinking, and I, I just blurted out, Disneyland. And they're like, what? what's Disneyland? 
And immediately I knew I was way over my head. Like, what? <laughs> How do you begin to describe Disneyland to people who, like, it, it's like Stone Age, seriously, there. Like, no electricity, no running water, no technology at all. Where do you even start? In Bislama. So <laughs> I said, okay, there, <laughs> there's a place in California called Disneyland, and, and you show up there, and the first thing you see is the castle. But the problem was in Bislama, there's no word for castle. The closest they have is Big Fella Hut. So I said, <laughs> in California, there's a big fella hut. Like, how big is this hut? It's like 100 feet tall. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Like, whoa, way bigger than anything they'd ever seen before. And, and they're like, who lives in the hut? Well, you can't talk about Disneyland without talking about the mascot. I'm like, well, there's a mouse. Um, <laughs> there's a mouse who lives there, and his, name, his name's Mickey. But the problem was in Bislama, there's no word for mouse. The closest they have is big fella rat. So I said, there's a big fella rat that lives in a big fella hut in California. And they're like, how big is this rat? I'm like, he's like 10 feet tall. And this was their worst nightmare. Like their eyes are getting big. Rats were a huge problem in Vanuatu. They hated rats. And so they're like, a ten, I'm like, no, no, no. It's not, it's not a real rat. There's someone, there's someone inside the rat. Like, he eats people? No, no, he, he, he kind of, he's inside the skin of the rat and he like talks through like demon possession. Like, what is this? I'm like, okay, forget the rat. There are these big fella cups and you sit inside the cups and it's like, why would you want to go there? And they're asking me all these questions. I'll never forget this. This was so epic. A guy looked at me right across the fire and he's like, deadly serious. He's like, Dominic, you must never go to Disneyland. It is an evil place. And Mickey the rat is a witch doctor. So in my mind, it's like happiest place on earth. In his mind, it's a version of hell ran by a mastermind slash rat named, named Mickey. So we had this whole conversation and it was getting nowhere fast. And finally, I'm like, okay, after what seemed like hours, I'm like, okay, how do I, how do I begin to answer some of these questions that you have? Well, there's really only one way. And what would that be? You go, right? And at that time, poor college student, I'm like, look, I don't have any money. If I did, I would buy you all tickets and I'd take you there. Like, we could get on a plane, we could fly to Southern California, we could show up at Disneyland, take a taxi, you could see the castle for yourself, you could even get a selfie with Mickey, hashtag witch doctor vibes, right? <laughs> you, could, you could do it. The, the only way for, for your doubts, your questions to be answered is, let's go on an adventure. And, and, I, and I just wonder sometimes, in those seasons of life, because let's face it, whenever we go through a time of doubt, it kind of feels like that paradigm shift, that worldview shift where you're sitting around a fire and you have this way of looking at the world or understanding scripture or the things you've, you've been taught growing up, but then you have this moment of doubt and it sounds like in that moment, big fella hut, big fella rat, Lord, what do I do with this? What do I do with these questions? What do I do with this uncertainty? What do I do with this fear? What do I do with this pain? What, what do I do with, with all of this anxiety in me because it feels like I'm being torn apart. Truly God is good, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. And Lord, that this doubt is growing within me and I, I don't know what to do with it and I don't know where to go with it. And, and what if God in that moment is saying, this is your moment, this is your time. 
or I wanna take you deeper and further than you've ever been before. So pack your bags, get on the plane, and let's go. Because there's things I wanna show you, there's truths I wanna reveal to you, my heart that I wanna open up to you, your doubt, your doubt, if you let it, can be the very thing that leads you 